This message was recorded at North 2012, an event organised by Christ Central, part of New Frontiers. You can find out more about Christ Central by visiting our website, ChristCentralChurches.org. My name's Adrian, I'm from Christchurch, London, and I'm married to Julia. We have four daughters, and we're all here this week enjoying being at North very much. And uh, so it's great to be able to talk to you on this subject. And uh, I thought I might mention that in this evening's main meeting, I will be uh, speaking, and uh, tonight I'm going to tell you the story of how I first got together with Julia, who is now my wife, uh, 16 years ago. Uh, so rather than tell you that story so you hear it twice, I thought I'd just tell you briefly what happened next. Would, that, would you be interested in what happened next? Well, what happened next, of course, is now I'm kind of together with her, with her wear an item, but I'm thinking sometime later, well, now I, I need to propose, so how am I going to do that? So I'm planning, how am I going to propose? How am I going to ask her to marry me? So what I decided to do was to hide in the bushes <coughs> And I started to plan my first burglary. My mission was to break into her parents' house, steal her passport, obviously without her knowing, and then I thought what I'll do is I'll try and whisk her away to Paris, and I'll propose in Paris as like a surprise, because I'm thinking if I can kind of up the romance level high enough, she might say yes in a kind of disorientated daze, brought on by the excitement of the Eurostar. So I broke into her parents' house, I stole her passport and, uh, as I say, whisked her away to Paris and in this restaurant in, in Paris called La Table d'Hôte du Palais Royal, uh, this set me back a bit, uh, but I managed to get a table there and uh, I got down on one knee, I asked, will you marry me? She said, yes. Now that was a fantastic moment. Now I can remember uh, kneeling down, there was quite a lot of people in the restaurant and it was obvious what I was doing in that I was sort of holding out a ring on one knee you know, whilst everybody was eating their dinner. But as I, it was like being in a dream come true. You, know, you think about the best thing that could happen to you in life and then it was actually happening and I was kneeling down and she said yes. She hadn't said, oh, you know, I'll think about it or no or you've got to be joking. She said yes. And it kind of reminded me of a day many years before which was also like a kind of a dream come true moment for me. It was the day when I first became convinced that Jesus, that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive? Or well, surely, you know, Jesus died nearly 2,000 years ago. Surely, when you're dead, you're dead. Now that is the view of 23% of the world's population. Uh, according to the latest Ipsos Social Research Institute poll, they surveyed 18,000 people in 23 countries and found that whilst the vast majority of people in the world believe in God and also believe in an afterlife, a very significant minority of people in the world maintain that there is nothing beyond death. It could well be that at least 23% of your work colleagues or people in your street or even your friends or perhaps people in your family, at least 23% of them would say, you know, when you're dead, that's it. And that, when people say that, it does feel like the end of the discussion, doesn't it? But is it really the end of the discussion? I myself came to this question as a skeptic myself. You see, I didn't go to church. Uh, I didn't know anybody my age who went to church. The best advice I ever got uh, a few years ago when I was working as a reporter on the Times newspaper in London, the best advice I got as a journalist was to stick to the facts. And then uh, studying history, uh, not far from here actually, at Durham University, uh, the best training I got there was to doubt the sources. Doubt original sources. In fact, at Journalism College, we were, tr we were trained to tear to shreds dubious claims and original sources. So, let's take this case. We know that so-and-so is dead. So-and-so is as dead as dead can be. There is no need for us to enter into any kind of speculation about an afterlife, which, of course, none of us have experienced. Yeah, somebody says, but... What about those near-death experiences? What about them? Well, I'm not sure they really give us any reliable information about life beyond the grave. Personally speaking, I would rather base my life 
on what we can be sure of. But to cut a long story short, it was historical evidence that persuaded me that Jesus must have risen physically from the dead. And that is the main reason why I am a Christian today. So let's start, let's back all the way up and ask a much more preliminary basic question. What would we know about the historical Jesus if we totally ignored the Bible? I want to suggest a number of things that we could be sure about if we ignored the Bible entirely. Well, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, and Lucian of Samosata, they both say that Jesus was regarded as wise. Second, Pliny the Younger, a friend of the Roman Emperor, uh, the Jewish Babylonian Talmud, and Lucian all imply that Jesus was a powerful and honored teacher. Third, the Talmud indicates that Jesus performed miraculous feats. Um, He was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Fourth, the major Roman historian of the period, Tacitus, Josephus, the Talmud, and Lucian all mention that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. Tacitus and Josephus say this happened um, under Pontius Pilate. The Talmud says it was on the eve of the Passover, which is exactly as the New Testament describes. Fifthly, Josephus has reports of Jesus' resurrection. Sixthly, he says that Jesus' followers believed that he was the Christ or Messiah. And finally, seventhly, both Pliny and Lucian indicate that Christians worship Jesus as God. So, perhaps contrary to expectation, turns out there is unbiased support for the Bible's version of events from very early, not just non-Christian, but even anti-Christian sources. More recently, Dr. Gary Habermas made a detailed study of 2,200 books and articles that people teaching in universities around the world have published on the resurrection since 1975. Gary Habermas is considered to have researched the academic output of scholars scrutinizing the resurrection more thoroughly than anyone else. He and his colleague, Dr. Michael Lycona, then chose only those facts which the vast majority of scholars, both Christian and non-Christian, accept as historical fact. In other words, they rejected material, they ignored material, including a lot of material in the New Testament, which was most heavily challenged by skeptical scholars. They chose to work only with those facts that the vast majority of academics, both Christian and non-Christian, accept or consider as reliable. And so using their restrained or cautious approach, I want to see if I can make a case for the resurrection using only four minimal facts. Facts that are accepted even by those scholars who oppose the resurrection. So here we go. Minimal fact number one. Jesus was crucified and died as a result. John Dominic Crossan, uh, uh, co-founder of the famous Jesus Seminar. This is a, a scholar who spent most of his academic life seeking to trash historic Christianity. Even he admits, quote, that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. James D. Tabor, another high-profile attacker of Christianity, agrees. Tabor says, quote, We need have no doubt that given Jesus' execution by Roman crucifixion, Jesus was truly dead. Now, more importantly, our ancient non-Christian early sources, Tacitus, Josephus, the Jewish Babylonian Talmud, and Lucian of Samosata, they all say that Jesus was crucified. And, of course, we know that all four of the Gospels also report Jesus' death on the cross. Now, let's just comment on those Gospels. You know that academic uh, theologians teaching in our universities, they don't treat 
you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John as God's word. They don't think that all of it can be trusted. Now, for the purposes of this seminar, let's just say that we go along with their point of view. Let's accept their position just for the sake of the argument. Just for the next hour, let's go along with their approach. Just for this discussion, we can simply accept for this afternoon the Gospels for what everybody thinks they are. And everybody thinks these are ancient documents that are written sometime before the end of the first century that can be subjected to historical scrutiny. Anyway, back to our first minimal fact. Folks, there are lots of other reasons why modern skeptics are sure that Jesus died by crucifixion. For starters, these Roman soldiers were a professional crucifixion team. It was their job. Now, the Romans didn't muck about. They were experts at executing people. Besides, if a prisoner escaped death, the responsible soldiers might be put to death themselves as a result. These soldiers who were put on the team to kill Jesus of Nazareth, they had a huge incentive to make absolutely sure that Jesus was dead before they removed his body from the cross. We know the Gospels report that they actually uh, shoved a spear up into his heart to make sure he was already dead before they took his body down. Now, we now know that the separated water and blood that came out of the spear wound actually is good medical evidence that Jesus was already dead at that point. Question, but could Jesus possibly have survived crucifixion? Maybe Jesus survived crucifixion. Then in the cool air of the tomb, he might have recovered enough strength to roll away the stone, overpower the guards, and then appear to his disciples. Well, before we consider those series of possible events, we'd have to consider the fact that the Gospels say that Jesus had already been through a Roman flogging. Now, I have got with me a rather gruesome visual aid, which will, I think, come as a surprise to most of you coming to the seminar this afternoon, because this is the sort of thing that one doesn't normally t- uh, carry with. I don't normally carry this around me as I travel around London, but I've got here a reproduction of a Roman flagellum. Surprising, yes, I know. Not something that you were expecting, perhaps, but there we are. So this is um, the sort of thing that historians think they used in the first century. Now, it's a gruesome, fearsome thing with metal pellets and it's got, I mean, it's designed these little sharp edges here. It's not so much that it's a dreadful business to have this thing whacked into your back. It's designed that when it's pulled out of your back, that's when your back is torn to shreds. Now, somebody who saw a Roman flogging, a man called Eusebius, he reported that it was possible to see as a spectator inside the internal organs. You could see the bowels of the victim. Folks, The fact that Jesus was flogged is relevant to the survival theory. Lots of people who were sentenced to death by Roman crucifixion never made it to the cross. They died during the flogging. Jesus would have lost a lot of his back and a lot of blood before he even got to the cross. In fact, in the Gospels, we do see evidence from this point on that Jesus was suffering from hypovolemic shock. In um, my book... Aftershock, I write this. The idea that Jesus never died on the cross asks us to believe that a man could survive a Roman flogging, a crucifixion from the world's most professional execution force, and a spear through his heart, then unwrap himself from cloth, probably soaked in 34 kilograms of spice, push away a huge stone, fight his way past maybe up to 16 guards, and then appear to his disciples as the picture of health, convincing them that one day they could have a glorious resurrection body just like his. More importantly, this explanation requires Jesus to become a liar and a hoaxer who contrived the world's most elaborate and the world's most successful deception, Christianity. Now, I don't think it's surprising that the survival theory never really got off the ground. So minimal fact number one, Jesus was crucified and died as a result. Okay, minimal fact number two, Jesus' tomb was empty. Now, interestingly, even an atheist historian will tell you that on the third day, Jesus' tomb was empty. Three days after Jesus' dead body was buried, it simply wasn't there anymore. 
Now why? Why are atheists willing to admit that the tomb was empty? Because historians agree that if Jesus' dead body had been in the tomb, then the Jews or the Romans would have produced Jesus' dead body as soon as the first Christians started shouting out, Yay! Jesus is alive! Christ is risen! Remember, Jesus of Nazareth had been such a blasphemous threat to the Jews and such a political threat to the Romans that the two of them had conspired together to get Jesus killed. The last thing they wanted was Jesus' disciples persuading people that Jesus had risen from the dead. The whole point of getting him killed was to snuff out the embryonic Jesus movement. If they had had the body, then as soon as the disciples started literally touring Jerusalem, punching the air, shouting out to their neighbors, Christ is risen, Jesus is alive, if the Romans or the Jews had had the dead body of Jesus, which of course they should have done from the tomb, they would have put the dead body of Jesus on a cart and followed the first Christians around with the dead bodies. As they're saying, Christ is risen, they could have said, well, no, no he's not. Look, he's here. Here is his dead body. I mean, Jesus was a celebrity after all. Folks, strictly speaking, Christianity should not exist. It should never have got off the ground. The so-called resurrection appearances of Jesus, they should have been instantly disproved by both the Jews and the Romans who had the dead body of Jesus in a sealed tomb guarded by soldiers. But neither the Jews or the Romans ever did produce the body. That is because they themselves could see that the tomb was empty. So the Jews and Romans would have produced the body if they'd had it, The reason they couldn't produce the body is because it had gone missing. The best they could do at the time to explain the empty tomb was to make up a story that the disciples of Jesus had stolen his body whilst all the guards fall asleep. A story that proves, if nothing else, that they definitely didn't have the body. So we can summarize this case or the evidence for the empty tomb with the acronym JET, J-E-T. So J, the Jerusalem factor. Folks, it is very significant that it's in Jerusalem that this new resurrection religion explodes into life and gains thousands of followers very quickly. In Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus' dead body was buried in a rich man's tomb, in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. The fact that this religion could take off and did take off in Jerusalem so successfully shows that it must have been the case that the tomb was empty because Jesus' enemies would have been desperately keen and would have had easy opportunity to produce his dead body had they got it. So that's J. E, enemy attestation. Folks, we have anti-Christian sources for the empty tomb. We know that the guard story, that the disciples stole the body whilst the that the guards had fallen asleep. We know that story was circulated widely by the Jews because we find a Jew called Trypho using it in an argument against a Christian apologist called Justin Martyr years later. The very fact that the Jews circulated this weak story shows that they didn't have a better one. Now, they should have had a better one. They should have had the most obvious one. They should have had the dead body of Jesus. The historical fact that the theft story was widely circulated by the Jews is another reason to think that the tomb was empty. And then finally, T, the testimony of the women. Now, the Gospels report that women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb and of the resurrection, to which we would say, so what? Uh, But in the first century, I'm afraid to say that in Greek culture, in Roman culture, and in Jewish culture, women could not inherit property and their testimony was inadmissible in a court of law. So if Matthew, Mark, Luke and John had wanted to lie and make up the story of the empty tomb, if they were fabricating Christianity, the gospel writers would never have made women the first witnesses of the empty tomb and of the resurrection. If you had wanted to create an empty tomb legend to get your new religion off the ground, you would never have made women your key witnesses. You would have chosen, you would have chosen men. So why on earth did the gospel writers say that women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb and the resurrection? This fact is all the more bizarre 
when you consider that in the Gospels the writers tell us they're deliberately being selective about the material they leave in because they've got so many stories and so much information about Jesus, they've had to narrow it down. So if you've already told us you're deliberately leaving some good stuff out, why leave this in? Why leave in this hugely embarrassing detail which would definitely have undermined the credibility of Christianity in the ears of the very people that the first Christians wanted to persuade. Well, the most likely reason why the Gospels report that Jesus first appeared to women and the empty tomb, the first person to discover the empty tomb was a woman, is because that's just what actually happened. And so the Gospel writers wrote what really happened. Okay, minimal fact number three. We're halfway through. Uh, Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and that he appeared to them. Now let's just remind ourselves of what is at stake at this, our third point. We've already seen at the start of this seminar that even the fiercest critics of Christianity are happy to concede that Jesus died on the cross. So if in the next few minutes the person who you're talking to were to become persuaded that Jesus later appeared alive to people, then you've just said and they've just said the resurrection happened. And if the resurrection of Jesus happened, then if we're to be at all logical about it, given Jesus' claims, then presumably the person you're talking to, on the basis of logic, should want to become a Christian as soon as possible. Question, yeah, but what about these resurrection appearances. I mean, you know, surely these are just legends which kind of grew up over time. I mean, after all, wasn't it hundreds of years later that these stories first got written down? Answer, well, actually, no. Rather than hundreds of years later, our earliest record of the resurrection appearances, which we can find in a New Testament document called 1 Corinthians and chapter 15, verses 1 to 8, the information within that we can trace back to within a few months of the resurrection. So let's have a look at this famous and important passage. In around 55 AD, the Apostle Paul writes, and the first words here turn out to be crucial, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. It begs the question, well, when did you receive it, Paul? But what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, this passage presents several problems for anyone seeking to argue that the resurrection appearances are more legendary than they are historical. First of all, writing less than 30 years after the resurrection, Paul reminds the Corinthians they can test whether the resurrection has any basis in fact because most of the 500 witnesses are still alive and willing to be interviewed. And for a number of technical reasons to do with the Greek and even Aramaic words that are included in this passage or are preserved within this passage, this passage, which you can see on the screen, is thought to contain a much earlier creedal statement. This is a statement that Paul used within his letter, but it was already existing. This is a list of the resurrection appearances which Paul picked up shortly after his own conversion in Damascus, or later when he takes a trip to Jerusalem to meet up with Peter and James. That trip was sometime between 35 and 38 AD, and we can actually read about that visit because he describes it in Galatians 1, verses 18 to 19. So here's the point. There is wide agreement amongst scholars that this list of resurrection appearances was already well established when Paul picked it up possibly as early as 35 AD already well established in 35 AD. So, this shows that the resurrection appearances are actually as old as Christianity itself and that they are not a much later legendary development. So we have got a very early report of Jesus' resurrection. 
Okay, question, well, uh, you know, what about these resurrection appearances? I mean, weren't they really, the resurrection appearances, weren't they really just hallucinations? Now, people who do hallucinate want to see something so badly that they end up thinking that they are seeing it. Sometimes, I'm sure you'd agree, that imaginary things seem real. I mean, let me just tell you a brief funny story about this from my own life. When I was a student, uh, this was 22 years ago, I genuinely thought that England were going to win the Football World Cup. As I was in the college bar with all of my friends and contemporaries, and we were watching Italia 90 on the TV in the college bar, England were going through the rounds, and we, we all thought England were going to win the World Cup. And it was exciting. I remember the, uh, in fact, one climactic moment in the quarterfinal against Belgium. In the 89th minute, it was nil-nil. And the ball comes forward and it drops over the shoulder. And David Platt volleyed to hit the ball into the top corner. I can tell you at that moment, as the ball hit the back of the net in the college bar that night, I kissed men <laughs> that I'd never met. Because it seemed real. We are going to win the World Cup. Now, of course, as you know, we didn't win the World Cup. As you would imagine, we were knocked out on penalties. But anyway, at the time, it seemed real. Maybe that's what's happening with the resurrection. I mean, it seems real to the disciples of Jesus, these appearances, but they're not actually real. They're really just hallucinations. What do you think? Well, of course, psychologists study hallucinations. Let's just be clear, for this idea to work, we are going to have to say that all 550 or so people who saw the resurrected Jesus on 11 different occasions over a period of six weeks were all hallucinating the same thing. Everybody who had meals with him, those who said that they touched him, those who said they had long conversations with him, were all hallucinating. Now here's the problem. Psychologists tell us there is no such thing as a group hallucination. We don't know of any group hallucinations. Only one person can see a specific hallucination at any one time. There's no reason to think that I, for example, could ever produce a hallucination in you. The whole point about a hallucination is that there's nothing actually there. You know, even if two people did hallucinate uh, the risen Jesus. For one person, he might be eating a piece of fish, but for another person, he might be flying through the sky. Let us face the fact that hallucinations are very rare. They're usually produced, in fact, they're almost always produced either by bodily deprivation or by drugs. In fact, I would be prepared to bet that there, if there was anyone at this event who has ever had a hallucination, it's either been caused by bodily deprivation or by drugs. And yet here, we're being asked to believe that over the course of many weeks, hundreds of people in various locations from all sorts of different backgrounds and temperaments all had identical, simultaneous hallucinations. Also, psychologists tell us that people who do hallucinate don't usually suddenly stop. And yet the appearances of Jesus, the resurrection appearances, do come to a sudden and dramatic halt which makes the hallucination theory even more unlikely. Now, our earliest source says that over 500 people saw the risen Jesus on one occasion. Even if we could believe that one or two people could see the same hallucination at the same time. 500 people? Yet, writing in 55 AD, the Apostle Paul says, if you don't believe these 500, you can just go and ask them, because most of them are still alive and they're willing to be interviewed. Now, remember, hallucinations can't be touched. Yet the resurrected Jesus was tangible. He ate a piece of fish. They spoke to him. They ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. They had long conversations with him. Now, I've always thought that because there really isn't anywhere else to turn, I've always expected that the hallucination theory would gain more supporters. But nobody has ever seriously argued for it because... Psychologists tell us that hallucinations are restricted to individuals. So we're a, a little bit stuck. But maybe there's another solution to this whole thing. Maybe the disciples just lied. I mean, maybe they did steal his body. I mean, don't you think they must have been gutted? 
I mean, you know, the whole life was bound up with this Messiah character and then all of a sudden, rather than sort of throwing off the Romans and becoming the king of Israel, it all goes horribly wrong and he dies this terrible death and their dreams are in tatters and of course they must have been sitting around wondering, well, what are we going to do now? You know, our lives are in tatters. Maybe they just in a mad moment decided, let's begin a rumor that, let's keep this thing going. Let's say that Jesus has risen and let's say that he appeared to us. Well, we're talking about two things there. We're certainly talking about the theft of a human body. You know, they did go to the tomb, they did steal the body. But then we're talking about the world's most elaborate and undoubtedly the world's most successful deception. And let's just imagine the disciples did steal his body. I actually find that quite hard to believe because these men were strict Jews who lived to a very high moral standard. They were very scrupulous when it came to matters of the conscience. Are we really going to say that these people who went all over the world telling people that Jesus had risen from the dead knew in their hearts that it was a miserable lie? They knew in their hearts that Jesus wasn't risen at all. The reason they knew that is because they themselves had nicked the body and buried it, I don't know, in Peter's back garden or somewhere. Now the biggest problem with this alternate theory is that the disciples didn't just say Jesus is risen, they died for it. To which somebody replies, well, you know, that's not a problem at all. People, you know, haven't you seen the news recently? People are always dying for their religious beliefs. Yes, precisely. People die for what they genuinely believe to be true. People don't tend to die for lies that they know are lies because they themselves made up the lie out of nothing. And yet these disciples were in a unique position of knowing without a doubt whether or not they had hoaxed the resurrection. If they had stolen the body, if they had buried it somewhere, if they had hoaxed the resurrection appearances, would they really have allowed themselves to be tortured to death for their lies? Because we know they were. I mean, Peter was crucified upside down in around 64 AD. Bartholomew and Philip were crucified. Andrew was crucified in a kind of a star shape with ropes. He wanted to make his death a bit longer. He didn't want to be crucified exactly the same way as Jesus. So, and we know that Andrew spoke about the resurrection from the cross because it took such a long time for him to die. And the list of martyrdoms goes on. Folks, the disciples were literally crucified for their belief in the resurrection. Right up until the last minute, all of them could have escaped death simply by admitting that it was a lie that they'd made up. If the resurrection was a scam, don't you think at least one of them would have cracked? I mean, during the torture, you know, as they're on the cross, they could have said, oh, this is ridiculous, cut me down from this cross. You know, I can't do another three days of this. Cut me down from the cross. It's just a lie, you know, we stole the body, we invented the story of the resurrection. But no, none of them ever said that. Because they knew in their hearts that Christ was risen. What about doubting Thomas? What became of him? Did he stay locked in that room in Jerusalem with his doubts? No, we have evidence that Thomas died in India, testifying to the resurrection. Many people have been converted because they couldn't believe the disciples would die for a lie that they knew was a lie. So, in summary, this idea that the disciples were actually the world's most successful liars, liars who died for their lies when they didn't have to, that's also usually been regarded as a non-starter. And that is why, folks, our third minimal fact, which is accepted even by skeptics, opponents of Christianity, is that the disciples were not deliberately lying. They genuinely believed that Jesus rose and appeared to them. Okay, last thing, then the minimal fact number four, this is a brief one, the conversion of the anti-Christian persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus. Now you might be surprised to find this makes it into the top four. But the reason it makes it into the top four is because it's not in dispute. And we do have evidence that this man, Saul of Tarsus, really was opposed to Christianity and he says he was converted because he personally saw the resurrected Jesus. Now we have six early sources, Luke, Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Tertullian, Dionysius 
and Origen, who all confirmed this newly converted Paul was willing to suffer continuously and even willing to die for his belief that he really had seen the resurrected Jesus. So we cannot dismiss Paul's conversion by saying, oh yeah, well yeah, Paul, he was one of the disciples, he'd been following Jesus, he was into this whole Jesus is Lord thing, so you know, he was susceptible to this resurrection story. No, definitely not in the case of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus had everything to lose and nothing to gain in this life through Christian conversion. Saul of Tarsus had previously enjoyed huge respect and massive standing in society as a top lawyer. He had nothing to gain and everything to lose in this life. The only thing he had to gain was being whipped, beaten up, stoned, and eventually in around 64 AD, he too was executed in Rome. Now, we know that most people who do change their religion today change their religion after being exposed to a secondary source. Here we have a very surprising conversion from someone who experienced a primary source. Saul of Tarsus tells us that he personally saw the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. We know it wasn't a private event. We know that others were present and saw the dramatic events unfold. Now, of course, we would say, look, you know, if Saul of Tarsus really had seen the risen Jesus, that would make sense. It would at least explain his extraordinary and surprising conversion, his subsequent life and his martyrdom. But we don't need to go that far. All we need to do for our fourth and final minimal fact is say, look, it is the case that Saul of Tarsus was converted to Christianity. So let's pause. We've done our four facts. And um, let's just imagine at this point that we want to disprove, or at least we want to discredit the resurrection. At this point, we do need to come up with something. We need to come up with an alternate theory. And any attempt to explain away any of these four facts, any theory we come up with, can't leave any of these four facts out. Now, if you were a juror at the Old Bailey Law Courts in central London right now, if the judge has just sent you out to the deliberation room to consider your verdict, at this point, you under oath would be looking for an explanation that best fits all the facts. Any explanation which minimises some of the facts or strains any of the known facts wouldn't work. You'd be looking for an explanation that best fits the facts that aren't in dispute. Folks, the reason why I became convinced that Jesus must have risen physically from the dead is because the resurrection explanation outdistances all the competing hypotheses by such a large margin. The resurrection explanation is the only explanation that can accommodate all the known facts. For example... Let's imagine we reject the resurrection and we say the resurrection never happened. Okay, fair enough. The resurrection never happened. We've still got to come up with something to explain the explosive growth of Christianity. We know that Christianity exploded into life with thousands of Jews suddenly worshipping a carpenter in Judea. But no historian would ever have predicted this fact because first century Jews were strict monotheists. The last thing a first century Jew would have done was to bow down and worship a human being. That was idolatry. So why did thousands of Jews suddenly altogether commit idolatry? Why did they stand on their theological heads and bow down and worship a carpenter and say a carpenter is God. They did something that they thought was disgusting previously and unthinkable. Can I ask you at this seminar a question? What could possibly happen in your life that would provoke you to do something for the rest of your life that you currently think is disgusting, immoral and repulsive? What event would have to happen to you to cause you for the rest of your life to do something that at the moment you think is appalling? Well, that's what worshipping a human being was for a first century Jew. Yet we know that suddenly thousands of Jews did this very thing. They did worship a carpenter. Also, the historian Tacitus tells us that there were, quote, an immense number or an immense multitude of Christians 
in Rome in 64 AD. Now, this is only 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus by Pontius Pilate. Why would an immense number of people in Rome risk being killed by the Emperor Nero to worship as God a man who had suffered the ultimate humiliation in Roman society of being crucified? So, if you will forgive me, it was the equivalent in our society of being a registered paedophile. Why would an immense number of people in Rome risk being killed by Nero? Bear in mind, Nero is a man who at this point is rounding up Christians and using them as illuminations by setting them on fire, stationing them around his garden because he wants to light up his garden so everybody can see how wonderful the landscaping is. So he's using Christians as torches. Now, if that's the environment you're living in, why would you choose to join this group, this horrible, despised group of Christians, and to worship this person who was the scum of the earth? And that's what a crucified man was in Roman society. Now, let's say, to try and explain these surprising facts, I choose the hallucination theory. Well, even if it is true, it doesn't solve the problem because it doesn't fit all four minimal facts. Even if I did reject everything that all psychologists teach, if I did say, oh, well, no, actually, Christianity is just just mass hallucination. Well, I haven't explained all four minimal facts. I've still got to explain the empty tomb. I've still got to explain why the authorities didn't produce the real body of Jesus. Sir Norman Anderson of Trinity College, Cambridge, a world-famous expert on Islamic law, said, quote, The empty tomb then forms a veritable rock upon which all rationalistic theories which attempt to disprove the resurrection dash themselves in vain, unquote. Folks, I'm coming to a conclusion here and I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine you lived on the moon and you looked down on the Mediterranean world in 33 AD And you have to bet your life either on the new religion of a group of 12 fishermen from Galilee, that religion taking over the entire known world, the entire civilized world, within 300 years, or, alternatively, you could bet on the might of the huge Roman Empire crushing this embryonic religious movement within a generation. You're on the moon. Now, who's your money going to be on? You bet on the Romans, yeah? And yet today, we name our children, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, and we name our dogs, Caesar and Nero. Folks, at the end of the day, somebody might understandably say at the end of this conversation, look, I've listened to what you've said. I just want you to know it's not for me. I mean, hey, Jesus might be risen for you, but he's not risen for me. Okay, well, in response, I'm sure we could all agree that if we had been doubting Thomas, as we'd reached out towards the supposedly resurrected Jesus, we would either ultimately have touched real flesh or we wouldn't have touched real flesh if we'd been there having breakfast with the resurrected Jesus we either would have seen a real fish go into his mouth or we wouldn't have seen a real fish go into his mouth more importantly we can all agree that if you and I had walked into that tomb on the very first Easter Sunday this is a very small space as you and I walk into this small space we would either both have seen Yes, yes, there is a human body in this. Apart from you and I, there is a third body. Yeah, we can see there is a human body. We'd either both have seen, yes, there is a human body in here, or we would both have looked around and said, no, no, it's just you and me. There is no other body in this space. Can you honestly say that the two of us would have left the tomb saying, well, it may have been empty for you, but it wasn't empty for me? (laughs) No. No. Folks, it turns out that history is terribly brutal to relativism. Folks, either the resurrection is true for everyone, because it really happened, or it isn't true for anyone 
because it didn't actually happen. Which brings us lastly to the effect of the resurrection right now. Maybe the person who we're talking to says, look, let me be honest with you, I don't care about historical evidence. I mean, it may be of interest to you, but I'm not interested in it. All I want to do is I want to know, can your supposedly resurrected Jesus do anything to help me? I mean, if I can feel something, if it's going to make my life better, if it's going to help me, like in a practical, real way, then I'm up for it. Well, that is the beauty of the resurrection. Millions of people are claiming right now to be experiencing the risen Jesus, to be in a relationship with him because Jesus is alive. And I know what a difference he's made to my life. The amazing thing about this evidence is this. Here's a man who makes these spectacular claims to his own importance. He claims to be God, but he places all the emphasis on the proof that I am who I say I am. The proof that I am God's son is that after I go to Jerusalem and after they kill me, three days later I will rise from the dead and that will be the evidence. That will be the proof that I am who I say I am. So if Jesus really has been risen from the dead, then his claim that every single person who holds his hand will, just like him, just as Jesus, burst through death into a new reality, into the resurrection, into heaven, that all who follow him, we've got good reason to think, yes, it will happen to us as well. This isn't just one person who's beaten death. No, this is someone who claimed to be God who's beaten death and who's promised that every single person who follows him will go through the barrier of death into a new eternity. This is massive, massive news. And it's the most thrilling thing that we could possibly be talking about. Folks, tomorrow afternoon, we'll do some questions in just a second. Tomorrow afternoon I'll be here again at 3 o'clock and I'll be tackling the exciting subject of hasn't science buried God? We'll be talking about the origin of the universe, the origin of organic life, evolution and all that good stuff. But for now, we're going to do some questions, but thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you very much. Okay. Folks, we have got uh, 10 minutes for anyone who has a question. Um, If you have a question, please raise your hand and I'll do my best to give you an answer or the best answer that I can. Anybody have a question about anything related to this subject? Do raise your hand and we'll see how we get on. Any questions? Yes. Could I explain it again? Yeah, okay, so the three things there were the Jerusalem factor, the fact that we know, in fact, even Tacitus tells us in that passage that this religion, because Tacitus is fed up, that this thing that started in Judea, and basically there's all kinds of horrible things that happened on the extremities of the Roman Empire, he was annoyed that it had come to Rome. So when you read the Tacitus passage, he tells us, I mean, even if we didn't have the Bible, we would know that Christianity starts in Jerusalem. Well, that was where they should have had the dead body. You know, that's where Jesus was buried. So the fact it started in Jerusalem is very strong evidence the tomb must have been empty, otherwise the thing could never have started. He was an enemy attestation. In other words, it's not just the Bible says that, you know, the disciples, uh, that there was a story about, you know, how the guards uh, were asleep and the disciples stole the body. No, we've got, we've got the enemies of Christianity. We've got people like Trifo using that. So it was a circulated story years later. And then T, the testimony of the women, the surprising fact that in Christianity they're launching this new thing and their star witnesses are women whose evidence wasn't valid in a court of law. You know, so it's the principle of embarrassment that generally speaking, if you're trying to foist a deception on the world, you don't include stuff that discredits your case. You tend to present a strong case or what you think is a strong case. You don't usually put bits in that will make everybody think, oh, well, that can't be true which is what effectively happened. Okay, very good question. Anybody else with a question? Yes. Thank you very much. That was great. Um, I've often wondered where, where sort of a non-academic person could fi- uh, like me could find a book or something that goes through the actual documents, if, if you know what I mean, as in this piece of paper was found in this year and uh, this is how we know what, I don't know, Pliny said or yeah, what okay. Christa said. Because uh, there, there are all these pieces of paper. Yeah. Um, I just think that I want, I've always wondered if to people who say, well, what, what's the evidence? If you could say, well, this yeah. book has got nice photographs or, of, or facsimiles of the 
the, the documents, or, or, you know, each say all these things which we base our arguments on. Just, yeah. I just thought that would be nice, but I was wondering if you knew of anything like that. Yeah, there, there is a, a massive uh, industry of Christian apologetics that does such things. I mean, in terms of the actual quotes, if you have got my Aftershock book, those, the six sources, the Lucian of Samosata, Josephus, we can talk a bit about Josephus if you're interested, uh, Tacitus, they're in the end notes of Aftershock, so you can pick that up. Um, but I would encourage you to look at or to Google Gary Habermas. Um, I mean, he's got masses of material online. Uh, he's got a book called The Historical Jesus, which actually does have the facsimiles. Um, so that, that is a, the whole book is about n- uh, evidence for the historical Jesus outside the Bible. And there are some other sources that I haven't referred to. For example, there's a, there's a, a source called Thallus, which we could go into and talk about a little bit. But The Historical Jesus by Gary Habermas is a great book on that subject. H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S. Great. Any other questions? Yes. Yes, thank you, Adrian. That's a very eloquent, um, very helpful argument that's been put. Uh, What would you say, though, um, Christianity is hardly unique in having devotees who are prepared to die for their belief. Uh, Many other religions, or some other religions, particularly, let's say, Muslims, there have been many hundreds of millions of devotees, uh, probably more than maybe Christians who are prepared to die as a happy way of getting to heaven, uh, which has particular benefits for men in particular in getting to heaven. Um, It's not unique, is it? No, you're absolutely right. Um, There's nothing unique in Christianity saying, well, you know, our followers have been martyred for the cause. However, there are some unique features of Christianity which aren't true of Islam. So, for example, none of these make Christianity true, but it does draw a pretty distinct contrast. So, for example, Christianity is the only religion which is claiming, Jesus is the only founder of a world religion who claimed to be God. No other founder of a major world religion claimed to be God. Only Christianity, secondly, is claiming that the only thing that's acceptable to God is sinless perfection. So, for example, Islam isn't claiming that. Thirdly, um, Christians, the Bible is saying um, that Jesus is the only way to God. And in fact, if you look at those three things together, that must be the case. So, we've got two things going on here. We've first of all got the unique claims that Christianity makes that makes it distinct from other world religions. And then secondly, we've got the fact that although these guys aren't unique in that they're prepared to die for their faith, the unique thing about the first disciples who were martyred for the cause was that they were in a unique position of knowing without a doubt whether or not the resurrection appearances were hoaxed. So a modern 20th century Muslim man uh, dying in a jihad, he's not been exposed to a primary source. He wasn't involved in the process of the creation or establishment of the Quran or of the Muslim religion. Peter, James and all those guys, they were in a completely different position. They were intimately involved. The fact that they were willing to die for this story that Jesus had appeared to them, that is significant because they were in a position to know without a doubt whether or not it was true. So that's a distinction. Now, it doesn't prove, in fact, there isn't, as I'm sure we're all aware, there isn't an absolute slam-dunk proof of any of the arguments that proves that Christianity is true to the point where no faith is necessary, otherwise clearly everybody would be a Christian. However, there is really, it's a really strong case that the disciples were in a position to know without a doubt whether or not they had hoaxed the resurrection, and yet they still were willing to be martyred for the cause. That's a very good question, that's my Best answer. Do you have a couple more before we wrap up? Anybody else got a question? Yes, at the back. The scholars and academics that um, have uh, done similar to yourself and similar to, to these guys, the people that you've looked at, they, I can't remember the name of the guy at the beginning that had, um, or the, the two guys that went yeah. through absolutely everything yeah, they yeah, find. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, presumably those two guys were Christians. Yes. Um, Gary How Habermas then, and Mike Lacona are Christians, yes. Okay. How then do uh, 
the, the academics that get to particularly points three and four, yeah. how do they not end up at the same place yeah. too? Well, this, this, because surely they, they must have enough evidence to the contrary, otherwise they would agree as well. Yeah, so there's two things here. This is a really good question. One of the reasons why I am convinced that Jesus must have risen from the dead is because I have read their attempts to explain away the evidence that isn't in dispute. And it's when you read the various alternative stories, try and explain it all, that you realize how weak this view that Jesus didn't rise really is. So what's really surprising to me is that we're now 2,000 years into this thing and there still is not a major alternative competing theory that literally, if I went into Middlesbrough now and I stopped 200 people and I said, okay, what do you think happened to the historical Jesus you know, after his death? There literally would not be a single alternative story that they'd all come up with. There'd all be all kinds of different things. And that's because none of these alternate theories hold water. So when you read them, so for example, you read John Dominic Crossan, who I quoted at the start from the Jesus Seminar, you read what he tries to make of it all, you realize how weak the case is. The second reason, which I think is a good question where you ask, hang on a minute, if they're accepting that these are facts, why is it then that they don't take the next step and decide to follow Christ and accept that Jesus has risen? My answer to that is the same response as I give, well, how do you explain the fact that, according to John's Gospel, immediately after the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, the very next verse says that the opponents of Jesus decide at that point, we will definitely kill Jesus. I mean, it's a bit like, how could Judas have not just seen all those miracles, but have actually performed miracles himself and still betray Jesus? It, it would be lovely to think that people really are logical and that we're not driven by the will. I mean, I'd love to think, for example, I can think of one particular friend of mine. And when push came to shove on this subject, he said, look, at the end of the day, it's not the evidence that's my problem. It's that this is a control issue. And I said, we just had this long discussion about historical evidence. What do you mean it's a control issue? He said, well, if I accept these facts, I have to give the control of my life over to somebody else. I'm not willing to do that. So everything that we previously talked about was all put to one side. At the end of the day, I don't want to follow this Jesus. Therefore, the evidence can just be kicked into touch. So inevitably, there is a sense in which it's got to be a submission of the will. So a lot of people aren't as logical as they'd like to think they are which is exactly what was happening at the resurrection of Lazarus when they said, okay, you raised that guy from the dead, so we'll definitely kill you. You know, which is not perhaps the most logical thing to say. You know, if you can raise the dead, maybe we should be paying more attention to your claims rather than just sort of killing you because we don't like it. Very good question. Okay, one more, last question, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Anybody got a final question before we close? Okay, yes, you have the privilege here at the front. Go for it. Okay, go for it. You, you do get the, the nutty uh, cults, things yes. like the, the ones who said the aliens were behind Jupiter and would come and... And you, yes. you get these completely ridiculous cults yes. that actually, by force of personality, yes. um, manage to get followers. Yes. So, faced with that level of delusion, yeah. how do you... Um, how do you counter the argument that Christianity isn't a delusion as well? Yeah, okay, very good question. Uh, for a number of things, I'd say, if the followers of those guys who were into the Hale-Bopp comment who thought that, um, you know, if, if those guys were a massive world religion 2,000 years from now, if they had somewhere between 1 and 2 billion followers, if there were 100 million of their followers in China then that would add huge credibility to their original claim. But I would still be interested in what are the what's the historical evidence for this. You know, this is your belief and you find it compelling. You know, putting to one side the fact that you've won so few followers, you know, 100 or 1,000 compared to literally billions, I'd still be saying what's your actual evidence for this. So for me, the key thing is not whether I'm experiencing the risen Jesus or not, the key thing for me is that any historical evidence of these events really happened. 
And so it does drive us back to the first century and the explosive growth of Christianity and the reasons why Christianity came to exist. And the fact we have got these early sources for the resurrection, which I find persuasive. Great question. So tomorrow, if you want to come back for more, hasn't science buried God, evolution, all of that good stuff. But um, I'm happy to stay around for a bit now and answer a few more questions. But thank you for your patience. You've been very kind. And uh, see you again tomorrow if you want to come back. God bless. Thank you very much.